0: Now, our next speaker, Strategic Considerations in Effective Animal Advocacy. Our speaker is Leah Edgerton. Leah is the Executive Director of Animal Charity Evaluators, and she spent two years in the past at ProVeg International, where she built up the organization's connections in China and collaborated with academics on experimental research aimed at reducing meat consumption. Thank you.
1: I would like to start out today with a thought experiment. Imagine, several years from now, that effective altruism has become mainstream. What changes would we expect to see? Would maybe late night sport broadcasts instead of showing football matches? Maybe they'd be showing prediction tournaments instead? <laughs> maybe hipsters instead of wearing those faded Ramones t shirts? they'd be walking around with faded Peter Singer T-shirts instead. <laughs> More seriously, though, how would we want the characteristics of our movement to change? Thinking on the margin is a very different exercise when we're act- asking ourselves how to best spend less than 1% of a movement's funding compared to when we're thinking about how to best spend 10 20 or, say, 30% of a movement's funding. This might seem like a fun thought experiment and just a fun exercise, but it's actually become somewhat of a reality for those of us working in the animal advocacy cause area. Perhaps the most striking metric by which to track this change is by looking at the amount of funding that EAs have influenced within the farmed animal advocacy cause area. So let's go back in time to 2014. ACE, to my knowledge, was the only organization influencing a EA organization influencing funding within the animal advocacy cause area, and we tracked just under $150,000 moved to our top charities that year, which my best calculation puts us our impact around something like 0.0015 to 0.003% of the movement's funding, so pretty small. Fast forward to 2018, and we see a very different picture. The combined efforts of animal charity evaluators, Open Philanthropy Project and the Center for Effective Altruism's Animal Welfare Fund influenced about $40 million in funding last year within the farm animal advocacy cause area. Just as a fun aside, I did a back of the envelope calculation around how much funding EAs influence within global health and development, and my calculation came at about 0.01% of the movement's funding that we influence within the total humanitarian budget, and that number is from 2017. As we explore the question of how to think about impact in a cause area where EAs have a lot of influence, where we are mainstream, it's also important to acknowledge another reality of advocacy within animal cause areas, and that is the lack of evidence available to inform our work. There are very few studies that exist on any intervention commonly used within animal advocacy, and the few that do exist are often lacking in a control group, which means that it's very difficult to infer causality. In other cases, they might be underfunded and hence underpowered, which means that we're unable to detect the types of effect that we're looking for. And more fundamentally, the types of effect that we're looking for are just particularly difficult to measure. And those include dietary change, attitude change, and systems change. In my talk today, I'd like to talk through the question that we started with. What do we do as effective altruists when we're working in a cause area where we have a small amount of evidence that we're working with and which, in a cause area in which we have a large amount of influence? I'd like to walk you through ACE's answer to that question. On the one hand, we seek to increase the amount of evidence available to inform our strategic decision-making, and simultaneously, We seek to prioritize the effectiveness of our movement on a movement level, in addition to considering individual interventions and individual organizations that are particularly promising. So let's dig in. Much of our work at ACE is focused on building a base of evidence that animal advocates can use to make better decisions. Our own research team conducts experimental research. We also do literature reviews that are aimed at answering some of the most fundamental and high, highly important questions that advocates are facing. In 2016, we also launched the Animal Advocacy Research Fund, which to date has funded 37 stu- studies. Um, those are mostly focused on intervention research, foundational research, and movement growth. On our website, we host a collaboration directory, which is kind of a matchmaking service between animal advocates who have research questions and researchers who have the skills to help answer them. We host a data repository on the Open Science Framework, which is a repository where researchers can upload the raw data from all their studies transparently for anyone to use. In fact, we actually require that our research fund recipients share their data transparently in some way as well. We also host a research library on our website, which does bring together the few studies that already exist, so the animal advocates have a resource to go to when they're looking for evidence to inform their strategy. We've also hosted a couple of events, including the 2016 symposium and 2017 research workshop, and our events are aimed at bringing together animal advocates and researchers to share findings and to discuss future research directions. More generally, we're seeking to move beyond the limitations of self-reported dietary data towards more robust data sources. Interestingly, when you ask people to report about their own dietary behavior, people are pretty likely to say, or not pretty likely, but it happens often enough that people would say that they're both vegetarian and that they eat meat in the same survey. So it's unclear whether that's like a difference in definition around vegetarian, what vegetarian is or if people are just really bad at predicting their own behavior, but in any case, Um, There's a lot of really exciting new studies coming out that are focusing on using actual behavior data. Um, Those include using purchasing data from supermarkets and from institutional dining facilities. And I just want to take a minute here to give a shout out to Jacob Peacock from the Community Labs who wrote a really great paper on the topic. If you'd like to discuss the topic further, I recommend reaching out to him. We're also making efforts to use the full range of evidence available to us. So when we don't have randomized control trials or for questions for which they're not a good a well-suited medium. We also seek to use historical and sociological evidence and case studies, and we also host an interview section on our website where we interview experts from the animal advocacy movement who are approaching the question of reducing animal suffering from different angles. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge a well-founded potential critique to using research other than the gold standard of randomized control trials. I think the biggest risk here is opening ourselves up to justifying our own behavior. So if we read the research in a way that makes us feel good about what we're currently doing, that's not really helping us find out the ultimate truth of how to help animals, and might just be giving ourselves a pat on the back. And so it's really important to keep that in mind when you're doing qualitative research, that this is the potential bias that we should strive to overcome. I'd also like to point out that the alternative also carries risks as well. When we're talking about only investigating interventions for which it's easy to gather evidence, we might be tempted to overlook interventions that are particularly effective, but maybe the effects are very indirect and therefore difficult to measure, or maybe they take place over a very long period of time, which means that it's really impractical to see the results. So in general, when using research, it's just really important to be aware of the different types of bias that different types of evidence bring with them. To summarize, we think that increasing the amount of evidence available and consulting as full a range of evidence as possible will help us make better decisions about how to reduce animal suffering. So let's check back in with our original question. How should effective altruists think about creating impact in a cause area where we don't have much evidence but which we have a very large impact? Our approach to answering the second half of that question has been to prioritize the health and hence effectiveness of the movement as a whole, in addition to promoting individual interventions and organizations that we think are particularly promising. In practice, this has meant allocating resources among more organizations rather than fewer, having lower standards of evidence for approaches that we think are particularly likely to be promising, and having a higher tolerance of risk. So some of our concrete projects... That reflect this line of thinking are our recommended charity fund, which allocates resources not only among our top three or four charities, but also a smaller percentage among our standout charities, and our newly launched Effective Animal Advocacy Fund. So we launched this fund uh, late last year with the idea of broadening the scope of charities that we support beyond just our top and standout charity designations. So these could include charities with a shorter track record, but a promising approach, or maybe those working in more neglected areas. Last year, our round of funding raised almost $2 million for this fund, and we made our first distribution earlier this year. We distributed grants to 49 recipients who are working in uh, movement building in neglected geographical regions, movement building in neglected demographic groups, capacity building in general, Um, corporate outreach, policy work, and influencing public opinion. More generally, we've worked to better understand the role that diversity, equity, and inclusion play in capacity building within our movement. We theorize that on a movement level, diversity adds resilience, which will be needed for our movement to be effective over the long term. Reducing animal suffering is a very complex question that spans the entire globe and has fundamental implications on people's attitudes and behaviors which means it's very unlikely for us to be able to change this on a massive scale in the short term. We think that a broad global movement with a diverse set of actors will be better at overcoming the obstacles that will inevitably arise. So more concretely, these types of movement-level considerations have inspired us to place a higher focus on organizational culture in our charity evaluations, and also to promote the work of those who are seeking to create a more equitable and inclusive movement for advocates of different demographic backgrounds. Tying back to our efforts to increase the base of evidence available that we have to work with We also see value in working with a broader set of actors, not only because of their direct impact, but also as an investment in the collection of future research, of future evidence. So being in touch with a larger set of organizations lets us learn more about other interventions that we haven't had a lot of contact with before. And in addition, we see value in bringing a larger set of organizations closer to ACE's work and closer to effective altruism principles in general. I'd like to take a moment here in the EA spirit to acknowledge a well-founded potential critique to broadening our approach. People might say that broadening our approach, working with people with different attitudes and beliefs, might increase the risk that we face of conflict, of mission drift, and of dissolution and fragmentation. These are real risks, and I think we've already seen some of these playing out in small ways. But I'd also like to challenge you to think about whether these risks are really as scary as they might be, and they might even come with some potential benefits. Conflict, for example, could lead to necessary change. And mission drift could lead us towards a mission that preserves the current strengths of the effective animal advocacy movement while overcoming some of its limitations. And it's possible that fragmentation could lead towards multiple movements that could accomplish more separately than we accomplish with our current movement together. We do think these are really important risks to take seriously, and we think that the way to approach these is through thoughtful and constructive communication. But we think that the value of working with a broad set of actors and developing a resilient global movement outweigh the potential risks of these factors. Over the last five years, the introduction of an effective altruism framework has drastically changed the landscape of the animal advocacy movement. Conversations informed by the principles of EA are taking place quite literally on the center stage at our largest conferences. Animal advocates are placing a higher emphasis on intra-movement cause prioritization. They're using more and more evidence to back up their strategic planning and they're thinking harder and harder about the cost-effectiveness of interventions. We see donors who are asking important questions about where their donations can have the most impact and making more strategic allocations of their funding. We see organizations that have pivoted their focus in order to increase their marginal impact. And we've seen volunteers that are asking important questions about where their time can add the most value to our movement. This growth of influence of EA within the animal advocacy movement is something that we should all be very proud of, and I know that many people in this room worked very hard to make that happen. So thank you very much. To quote a famous thinker of our times, with great power comes great responsibility. Thinking on the margin is now a very different exercise than it used to be. Asking ourselves the question of how we should spend less than 1% of our movement's funding in order to have the greatest impact possible gives us a meaningfully different answer than when we ask ourselves how we should spend 25%. Compound that with the lack of evidence available to support our decision-making, and you can see the importance of proceeding carefully. That's why at ACE, our approach is to focus on increasing the amount of evidence available to inform the decisions that we make while simultaneously acting in ways that reflect epistemic humility and promote the health and hence effectiveness of our movement over the long term. Thank you.
0: And now Leia, I invite you over to QA land. Oh, wow. In this corner. So, just a couple of questions here from the audience. Um, one, how do the priorities of the effective animal the effective animal advocacy fund differ from those of the EA
1: animal welfare fund? yeah, so um I think actually it's a fair question, and those do have fairly similar goals um, I think what makes the ea fund uh, the ea's animal welfare fund slightly different from the ACE, Effective Animal Advocacy Fund, is, like, simply who's making the decisions, and I think I would like to see our movement move towards, um, you know, something we talked about in our factory farming meetup, having a more diverse set of funders and a more diverse set of thinkers, so that we're avoiding the group think effect, and that, you know, we're all making these decisions thoughtfully and carefully based on the different evidence that we all have available, so um, I think in practice, you know, we have slightly different values over what we think the most neglected areas are, And, um, you know, we have slightly different opinions about certain types of interventions and certain types of foundational questions. But I think, yeah, they actually are fairly similar funds. Thank you. Sure. Um, the next
0: question is a, sort of a multi-stage question. So other than effective donating and research, what concrete advice would you offer to a non-EA animal welfare sympathizer interested in effective citizen advocacy? Or rather, what practical advice can we offer to aspiring animal advocates we come across outside of the EA the EA bubble? And what can we recommend they do tomorrow as well as a year from now?
1: Sure. So I think generally um, there are ways that we can promote certain aspects of effective altruism within the animal advocacy community that we've seen get a lot of resonance. So that's just basic ideas like measuring our impact and thinking about cause prioritization, um, narrowing the focus of our programs to where they're actually helping the most animals. Um, I think we've seen organizations and individual advocates think about maybe working in different countries or on different types of interventions when they think about these questions. So that's one way. Um, but I think concretely as well, there's a lot of opportunities um, within ACE and within our recommended charities for, for internships, for job opportunities, for supporting as volunteers, for supporting as donors. Um, and I think yeah, there's there's a lot to look into there. Um, the eighty thousand job out the eighty thousand hours job board is a really great place to start.
0: Awesome. Um, and I know that there were multiple, Oh, there's another question. Okay. Um, how do you think the effective animal advocacy community can be more inclusive or persuasive to the rest of the animal advocacy movement?
1: Sure. I think, um, yeah, I think one thing that's important is to not go in with arrogance and not go in thinking that we have all the answers. Um, you know, as I said in my talk today, the evidence base is really lacking, and we have a lot of uncertainty about these questions. And I think we can go in and say, you know, it's important to be asking these questions, to be having these conversations, but I think we also need to be humble and know that, you know, the approaches that we're taking, you know, not go around and say that, you know, the approaches that other people are taking are are ineffective simply because the evidence that we have today is inspired us to work on something else I think um, it's important to keep an open mind and to keep in mind that uh, conflict and tearing each other down is probably like much less effective than the various differences in our um, different interventions and to think about you know the long term and building a movement where we can all have these conversations together and help our, all, of our, all of us all of us improve together and not have um, yeah any sort of arrogance about what works when in fact these are very very difficult questions.
0: Great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.